Welcome to Puzzling It Out, Thoughts and Perspectives from a Clinical Psychologist. Hello, my name is Dr. Gail Lewis, your podcast host, and a clinical psychologist practicing on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. The topic of today's podcast is what constitutes a private practice. And I wanted to talk about this because I've just made a big decision and it brought up many different feelings and many different associations and many different questions, including what constitutes a private practice. During the past several months, I'd say since March, I haven't been working out of my office on 91st Street. I have been working out of my home doing virtual teletherapy solely via Zoom uh, and my computer, which is entirely different than what goes on when I'm sitting in my office and conducting a session, which is in person, in my office. And I've had to make many adjustments, as have my patients, in transitioning from in-person sessions to teletherapy sessions. I think transition is not a fair word to describe it. I think it was an abrupt change. One day, patients were coming to see me in my office and the next session, whether it be um, in the following week, some during the same week, we were seeing each other via a computer screen. And being asked to accept it, adjust to it, go with it, simultaneously adjusting to why we were doing that which I do believe is an ongoing adjustment and will continue to be an ongoing and chronic adjustment, the likes of which will endure, given that the adjustment has to do with the onset of COVID-19, its effects large and overwhelming as they are, and large and overwhelming as they continue to be, on our daily functioning, our daily habits, and our lives overall. And because there's no certainty at all associated with what COVID-19 can do and what is going to put an end to 
how it has affected us so significantly, we're all sitting in a state of an unreasonable sitting with unknowns. We always sit with unknowns. That is life. We never know what is going to happen next. I would say for the most part, there's no way to have control over most things in our lives. And the only thing that we do have control of is ourselves and how we manage what situations we are in, what interactions we have, what feelings we have, the way we react to whatever comes our way. But this is a whole other ball of wax in terms of dealing with and sitting with unknowns because at this point it seems unending. And I say that since we don't have a vaccine for this, since we're dealing with a virus that seems to, like many other viruses, be mutating. Uh, I don't know what the regular clip of mutation is for viruses, but this one seems to be mutating rather seamlessly. And even if there was a vaccine that would come along, would it be tested enough for people to be taking it safely without noxious side effects? Would it be effective in the long term? How available would it be? Given, given that testing is still so chronically screwed up in terms of its availability and the regularity in terms of its how long it takes, for example, for a test result to come about. For example, I had a test a few weeks ago and it took uh, six days for me to get my test results. I know other people who've had tests and they found out the next day. I'm assuming these are not the same kinds of tests. I'm assuming that these are not the same labs. Why did I have to wait six days? I'm fine, by the way. And why does somebody else only have to wait one day? My point is that there's no continuity of care and of the way we are going about this for a lot of reasons, which are not necessary for me to go into at the moment. Just look at your news and you will see what I'm referring to. So because of all of this adjustment that we need to make and because I've realized that it seems that it would take an awful lot for me to feel comfortable being back in my office with patients. Um, some of the questions of, that I've asked myself are, would I be willing to sit in an office when I'm wearing a mask and a patient is wearing a mask? And the answer is very clearly no. Not only would that 
create a dynamic that suggests that we need to hide from one another, even if that's concretely not what the masks are for, it would certainly have the potential of conveying that. Um, and given that my office and a psychoanalytic setting is meant to offer a space where there's no hiding, there's no censorship, there's no keeping of information, even if our resistances and defenses keep us from doing that, that's an acceptable reason for hiding things. That That's part of the program of doing psychotherapy and psychoanalytic psychotherapy. We anticipate those kinds of resistances. We're not set up for, nor do I think it's healthy, to have an office setting in which mask wearing can convey keeping information, hiding behind. Um, so for those reasons, absolutely not would I be able to be in an office when we're both wearing masks. Then there's the issue of, well, I'm going to have to change my entire schedule so that after each person comes into my office, I will have to thoroughly clean my office. After every person sits in the waiting room, and I'm not the only one in my suite, I have two other colleagues who see patients, we will have to uh, take shifts in cleaning the waiting room. After everybody, you know, or one person goes to the bathroom, which we're going to have to find a way to keep notice of, which of course is insane in that, and I can't believe I have to say this, but being in the bathroom is private. And to keep an eye on whether or not someone is in the bathroom and washing their hands or flushing the toilet is just insane to me. Nonetheless, we would have to clean the bathroom in between everybody's usage of the bathroom. Uh, and there's really very little way to to monitor that. There's one bathroom in the suite. Uh, it would mean interrupting sessions. It would mean excusing ourselves from sessions. And that would be unbearably, for me, disruptive. Then there's our waiting room, which is very small. No way to keep social distance there. So where would patients who are waiting for their session sit? They can't possibly sit in a lobby my office is on the first floor. Um, that would not do very well with the residents of the building. I'm in an apartment building. So would they stand outside on the sidewalk? Some people might think that's loitering and would make people who live in the building understandably uncomfortable having strangers not to me, not to my colleagues who I share a suite with, standing on the street waiting for their appointments. 
so you know, all in all, concretely and logically, there is no way for me to make sense out of our current situation and being able to be in my office from a concrete perspective. Though, though I alluded to the mask wearing as a symbol of hiding, a symbol of trying to mask oneself, trying to not show part of oneself. And the idea, one of the ideas of psychoanalytic psychotherapy is to show all parts of yourself, to get to know all parts of yourself through the process of speaking, through the process of sharing, through the process of conversing with another person and allowing the other person to help you process and pay attention to what you are saying, how you're saying it, what your body language is. If you're smiling about something that makes absolutely no sense to be smiling about, one's facial expressions need to be paid attention to. I can't tell you how many times I've been with a patient and they're talking about something incredibly painful and they're laughing, they're smiling. And it's my responsibility to ask about what the meaning of the smile might be. How could I possibly do that if a person is wearing a mask? Um, how could a person possibly feel safe being in an office where I'm wearing a mask and they can't see my facial expressions. Now, that's, that is the case if someone is lying on my couch and we're doing psychoanalysis and I'm sitting behind them and they can't see my facial expressions. That's built into the process. But when I have patients who are sitting up right across from me, they have counted on understandably and reasonably so that they will be able to see my face, my entire face. And I acknowledge I do not have a poker face. I am not one of those therapists that has a blank expression, nor have I ever been. And classical psychoanalysts would probably kick me out of their door if I wanted to do training with them. And that's perfectly fine with me. I'm a very expressionful, that's the word, person through my facial affect. And that would be impossible if I were to be wearing a mask. So with, with all of these concrete things that I've come to realize would make it impossible for the foreseeable future to be able to comfortably have patients sit in my office with me, come to my practice and be there, I have decided that I'm giving up my office. And this was a very difficult decision for me to make. And this is not the same kind of decision 
as one might be making if one was giving up, say, an architectural practice. Not that I know that much about the emotional underpinnings of what it means for an architect to have an office, but I remember when I first got my, my very first office and what a big deal that was and what it meant to move from being in a clinic setting where there were colleagues all around to being in a solo practice where, yes, I shared a waiting room with other colleagues, but for the most part, it was just me. And I was going to be bearing all the responsibility and rely on myself and trust myself and believe in myself to be able to have patients come and see me and for me to provide the safest and most respectful environment in which they could do whatever that it was they needed to do. And this is a very big undertaking. And then I remember when I left that office. And I left that office after many, many years. And it was, again, a considered decision not the same as this decision because I left the office with another office to go to. So while it was a bit unsettling to some of the patients with whom I worked who had gotten accustomed to seeing me in my first office, there was continuity of being able to have an office to go to, both for me and for my patients. And faith, I do believe, that I would recreate whatever kind of safety and comfort and groundedness and openness that I afforded my patients in the first office. And I do believe that I have accomplished that. But right now, I am just leaving my office. I don't have another office that I am signing a lease for right now. I am putting my belongings from my office in storage. I do plan at some point when it feels safe and things feel regulating and things feel grounded and it feels as if we are on a route where I could revisit the kind of climate that I want to and find necessary to provide in my office, I will sign another lease and I will return to having patients in an office with me. And I'm intentionally saying in an office with me, as opposed to in a private practice with me. As the title of this podcast states, what is a private practice? When I've been asked before, do I have a private practice? My answer is yes, 
and I volunteer automatically that my private practice is on 91st between Park and Lexington or I will wait and they will ask me where is your private practice and that has become my very automatic response that my private practice is located at a certain space and it's defined by the office. The office is the private practice. That's what that's what a private practice is. It's the office. However, in making this decision to give up my office, I ask myself the question, do I still have a private practice if I don't have an office? Is the private practice the office or is the private practice me? And it didn't take me that long to come to the answer, but it was a question I've never asked myself before. And the answer is the private practice is me. Uh, the office is just an office. It's just four walls. It's a space. But what makes it a psychoanalytic psychotherapy practice that is private because it's just mine is me. And what I have created in that space vis-a-vis -vis the way I have furnished it, the way I've decorated it, but more importantly, the way that I comport myself there, the way that I conduct treatment, the way that I do my very best at all times to ensure that whoever is walking in that office does so knowing that their well-being is of utmost importance to me and they're feeling safe and I keep using that word because it's so important and they they feel safe and they feel open and they feel that they can be open and they can reveal things in that space that will be held and sat with and respected and kept in confidence as long as they need that to be the case. The confidence piece, that's there even when patients leave treatment. That never ends. But people need to know that when they're in my office, when they're making a decision to come work with me, that what they say to me stays with me and I share and I hold and I bear that information with them and for them and often because they can't. And that's precisely what I'm doing now. In the walls of my home, which I don't consider to be my private practice, I've never thought of my home during this time as my private practice. I've considered it my home in which I do my work.
But if I were to truly consider it in light of the question, what constitutes a private practice, I would say now that I have a private practice in my home and I am doing the work of my private practice, which is me in this space, in this different way, that is not the same as in-person treatment. I will never declare that it is. There's much more that I can be in charge of in my four walls of my office. For example, patients and I are in the same room together. And that is part of the construct of the work. That's really an important part of the work. Right now, patients are not in the same room as me. Most often they are in their homes when we have sessions. And I see the background of their homes. I have an opportunity to see things about their homes that I otherwise would not get to see. They have the opportunity to see the background of part of my home that is reflected in their computer screen that they otherwise would not be able to see. And it introduces a whole other set of variables that I try to control for in my office that I can't control for doing it this way. I can do my very best on my end and I do try to and I do consciously make an effort to replicate the kind of safety and the kind of holding space that I provided my patients in my office. Though the transmission from one screen to another is through a series of electronic communications that I have to trust are safe. It's HIPAA compliant, meaning that it is deemed to be a safe platform. I make sure the platform is locked so that no one else can intrude. But it's not the same thing as closing my door and having a sound machine on outside of my door so that no one can hear what's going on. I have no control of that. When a patient is in their home, they probably do their very best to make sure they have privacy. And we've had to do a whole informed consent and privacy discussion. So to ensure that privacy is is privileged in the most ideal way possible. But not everybody has that luxury in their home when they're having a session to be able to recreate that kind of privacy that I do provide in my office. So 
this is a big adjustment. It has been a big adjustment. And I think when my patients start registering that those that have been in my office, that they will not be coming back to my office. I think it's going to be a process of adjusting to that and what that means for them. I do know that doing the work via screen is presents a frustration and presents a type of exhaustion that I know I haven't felt when I'm in my office. And I know that my patients who might be working via screen all day do not find any solace in knowing that their session is going to be via screen as well. But we do the best we can. And I, as my private practice, as I identify as my private practice, I can only do the best that I can. And I can keep doing the work, keep providing the care and the holding space and the interest and the empathy and the compassion. And everything that I would otherwise do if I were in my office. But even though I'm closing the office, I still have a private practice. And that is Dr. Gail Lewis. That is me. Thank you so much for listening. I always appreciate you taking your time. If you have any questions or reactions to this podcast, you can comment on the podcast website, webpage rather, on my website at drgaillewis.com. There is also my email and my phone number on my website. By all means, reach out if you have any questions. If you're interested in setting up an appointment, there is a page on my website to schedule an appointment, which would mean scheduling a phone consultation. My phone number remains the same, which I'm very, very glad about. I was a little worried about that. But I do get to have the same phone number that I've had since the very beginning of my time opening an office. So there's the continuity there. So the phone number on my website is a phone number at which you can reach me. I look forward to our next episode together. And in the meantime, take care. Bye-bye.